Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we approach your holy word. And we would dare not do it flippantly. We would not do it casually. Lord, we know that this is the very word of the living God. And he does not give it in vain. It won't return without doing what he is sent to accomplish. And so, Father, I pray for each one here today. Would you minister something to them, wherever they're at today? Would you give them something of life, something of Christ, that would minister wholeness and salvation and deliverance to them? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis chapter 14, we meet up with one of the most intriguing and mysterious men in the Bible, this man Melchizedek. And it's interesting because there's only three verses in the book of Genesis that tell his whole story. He appears out of nowhere, and he disappears into nowhere before we know, even know what's happened. And if Genesis 14, 18, 19, and 20 were the only verses we had about Melchizedek, we probably wouldn't be talking about him this morning. But David, in Psalm 110, verse 4, picks up the theme of Melchizedek, and David says... The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, my Lord, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And even that's only one verse talking about Melchizedek. But the author of the book of Hebrews picks up this theme about Melchizedek. And he must have been meditating on Psalm 110 verse 4 because he repeats that verse three times in the book of Hebrews, twice in Hebrews chapter 7, and he expands on this, and he tells us how Melchizedek looked forward to the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, and how he was just a shadow, a foreshadowing of the real one. So we're going to take our time this morning with this intriguing man, Melchizedek, and we're going to see how he's a picture of Jesus how he looks forward and is completed in the substance of Jesus. Melchizedek was the shadow. Jesus is the reality. But before we can do that, I need to give you a little bit of background about Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham sets off on this daring military expedition to rescue his nephew Lot. You see, Lot had been caught in the crossfire. There had been a war in his hometown of Sodom. Four kings from the northeast had come down to wage war against five kings from the south. And the reason was this. The four kings of the north had subjugated those five kings from the south. And so they were supposed to be in submission to these four kings. And they were for 12 years. But in the 13th year, they just got tired of being the slaves of these northern kings. They got tired of paying tribute and so they decided we're not going to take it anymore. And say so they allied themselves into a federation of five kings. And they said, we're just going to go out and do battle against these four northern kings. Well, the four northern kings weren't going to take that sitting down. And so they cruised down and they engaged in battle against these five southern kings. And they were victorious. They routed them. And they ended up taking all of these people hostage as captives, as slaves, and apart from that, they took all kinds of booty and all kinds of spoil. And they're, now they're taking those goods and those people, including Lot, whom they had captured in Sodom, and they're taking those people back up north to where they had come from. 
Well, Abraham catches wind that this had happened. And he's not about to let these four kings take his nephew as a captive. And so what does he do? This is one of the most crazy, insane military expeditions probably that's ever taken place. Abraham, with 318 servants, decides he's going to take on these four kings. Now remember, these four kings are undefeated in battle. Never lost a war. (laughs) This is like a guy stepping into the boxing ring who's never boxed before, taking on the heavyweight champion of the world. Saying, ah, I'll take him down. Well, Abraham just has a lot of courage and a lot of boldness, a lot of faith in his God. And so he goes after these guys and he wages this guerrilla warfare against them. In the middle of the night, he splits up his men and they go in different directions and they start attacking and they use the element of surprise to their advantage and they rout the enemy. They chase him for a hundred miles. They pursue them. And then after they're done, they take all of those people back, including Lot, the women and the children. They take all the spoils of war and they're headed back home. Well, this is where Melchizedek comes up and meets Abraham. And interestingly, Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. Must have been very refreshing for his army after this exhausting battle that they were in to have something to eat and something to drink. So here he comes, priest of the Most High God, king of Salem, comes out and he meets Abraham and he blesses Abraham. And Abraham, in turn, gives him a tithe, a tenth part of all of the spoils of the battle. And then he disappears off the stage of history forever. And we never hear a single thing about him again in terms of his story. Now, the first question, of course, that comes to our mind is, who in the world was this fellow? Who was Melchizedek? And there's all kinds of theories about that. Some people say he was Shem. Shem was the son of Noah. Others say that he was an angel. Others say that he was Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance before he came into the world. Now, let's take these, each one in turn. First of all, could he have been Shem, the son of Noah? Well, he couldn't be because Hebrews chapter 7 and verse, let me find it for you, verse 4 says, Now observe, no, excuse me, verse 3. Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, Shem certainly did have beginning of days and end of life. Shem had a mother and a father. Who is Shem's father? All you people who are following this so far. (laughs) It was Noah. He was the son of Noah. So we know who his father was. We know who his mother was. He had a genealogical record. So it couldn't have been Shem. Could Melchizedek have been an angel? Well, not according to Hebrews 7 verse 4. It says, now observe how great this man was. He wasn't an angel, he was a man. Could he have been Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance? Well, perhaps, except for one little detail of Hebrews 7 verse 3 that says, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. He was made like him. Now, a banjo is not like a banjo. A banjo is a banjo. Melchizedek was like the Son of God, which tells me that he was not the Son of God, but he was like him. So, who was he? Well, I think he was exactly who the Bible seems to indicate he was. He was a Canaanite king, an ancient Canaanite king who lived in the area of Canaan, 
who was also a priest of God Most High. Somehow he came to know the true and living God and God appointed him as a priest there even before the Levitical priesthood had been established. And this was an ordinary human being like you or I. He came up to Abraham and he blessed him. Abraham gave him a tithe of all. The only interesting thing about this man is that he had no genealogical record. We don't know who his mommy or his daddy was. We have no record of who he came from and when he was born and where he was born and where he died and when he died. There's nothing at all in the scripture to indicate any of that. That's what he's saying in Hebrews 7 verse 3, that the Bible records no father or mother or genealogical record or beginning of days or end of life. He just appears out of the blue and slips off into the blue. So that's who he is. But he is a picture of Jesus. A beautiful picture of Jesus. And because we want to throw the floodlight on Jesus this morning, we're going to throw a little bit of light on Melchizedek because then he is the shadow that shows us the reality of our Savior, our King and our Priest. And there's four aspects to Melchizedek's life that I want you to see this morning. And first of all is his parentage. His parentage. You say, Brian, that's crazy. He doesn't have any. (laughs) The Bible doesn't list any parentage. And that's why I bring it up. Because it's significant that he doesn't have any parentage listed in Scripture. Think about the book of Genesis for a minute. Nobody who is anyone in the book of Genesis goes without a genealogical record, right? Genesis chapter 4. The genealogical record of Cain is listed. All the children of Cain are listed. How long they lived, when they had their child, when they died. Genesis chapter 5. The genealogical record of Seth, leading all the way down to Noah. Genesis chapter 10, you have the record of the descendants of Noah. And then you have the record of of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Joseph. So anybody who's important in the book of Genesis has this genealogical record, except for Melchizedek, which is significant. Because when, when... God gives us a type in the Old Testament, someone or something that's a picture of something to come. Not only what is said is important, but sometimes what is not said. And in this case, what is not said is who his father is, who his mother is, when he was born and when he died. That's significant because Jesus Christ, the reality, the one the shadow was looking forward to, had neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now let's think about that for a minute. Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8 says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. And then if you go over to Revelation twenty-two thirteen, it describes him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, If you've ever studied the Greek language, what do you know about the letter alpha? It's the first letter of the alphabet. What about omega? The last one. So it's like he was saying, Jesus Christ is the A to Z. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's everything in between. He is the beginner and he is the ender. That's why Jesus could say in John 8, 58, before Abraham was born... He didn't say, I was. He says, I am. 
even before he was born, I am. I am the eternally existent one. I have no beginning, and I'll never have an end. I am just life itself. That's why also in Micah 5, verse 2, it says, um, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth have been from long ago, from the days of eternity. Now it's talking about Jesus, the one who would be born in Bethlehem, and it's saying that his days, his goings forth, you can trace them back to the days of eternity. There's no date in time that you can trace his beginning to. It goes back into eternity past. He has no beginning. And that's why when John starts his gospel, he says, in the beginning was the word. Before time existed, before this world existed, Jesus existed. Not as the creature, but as the creator. And also extending that into the future. Jesus will never have an end. Do you know why? Because he's God. Because he is life itself. He's the fountain of life. You see, we are creatures. We derive our existence from our creator. Jesus is not a creature. He is the creator. He doesn't derive his existence from anything or anyone. He just is life. He's an overflowing fountain of life. That's why we have existence, because of him. But he derives existence and he's dependent upon no one or no thing. So he will never come to an end, and he never came into existence. He just is. He's God Almighty, the A to Z, Alpha and Omega. And so the parentage or lack thereof in Scripture of Melchizedek shows us this aspect of Jesus, the Eternal One. No beginning, no end. But secondly, notice his power, the power of Melchizedek. We find that out that he is a king. Look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2. No, it's actually verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now we're told two things in this verse. Melchizedek is king of Salem, and he's priest of the Most High God. Now if we go down further... Verse 2 says, To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. So you have these two aspects to Melchizedek. He's a king and he's a priest. Now his name, Melchizedek, means King of Righteousness. That's, how, that's what his name means. Melchizedek, King of Righteousness. But at the same time, he's not only the king of righteousness, but he is king of peace because he is the king of Salem. See, back then, kings were a little different than they are throughout the rest of history. We think of a king and we think of the king or the queen of England, a nation. But Salem was not a nation. Salem was a city. Kind of like the king of Rancho Cordova. That's what Melchizedek would have been like. He was the king of a city-state. So he's king of Salem, and Salem actually is probably another name for Jerusalem. Notice that Salem is the ending on the word Drew Salem. And the word Salem is closely linked to the word Shalom, Salem, 
Shalom, king of peace. That's what Shalom means. And so here is Melchizedek. He's both the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace, which is the other uh, meaning for the word Salem, the city of which he was a king. So he has a kingdom. In this kingdom, he is a righteous king and he expects righteousness of his subjects. It's a righteous kingdom. And because his kingdom is righteous, it's a peaceful kingdom, especially because between himself and all of his subjects, he has made peace. So he's a righteous king, and he is a king who establishes peace between himself and his subjects. Now let's take him and throw the light on the reality, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, first of all, is a king. When he came into the world, remember the Magi came to Herod the Great, and the Magi said, Tell us, where is the king of the Jews? And when Jesus was going before Pilate, before he was to be crucified, Pilate asked him, Are you, as they say, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus responded, It is as you say. I am a king. For this reason I came into the world. Yes, Jesus is a king. But he's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of the universe. That's why when the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to Timothy, in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Now to the king eternal, invisible, immortal, the only God, be honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. And then when he winds up his letter in chapter 6, verse 15, he says that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. So he begins the letter by saying that Jesus is the king eternal, immortal. He ends the letter by saying that Jesus is the king of kings, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. Yes, Jesus is a king. He is a king. He's the king of righteousness. The king of righteousness. Psalm 89, 14 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So he is a king of righteousness because he is righteous and he has enacted righteous laws that he expects his followers to abide by. He's a king of righteousness, but he's also a king of peace. In Isaiah chapter 9, we have that beautiful messianic prophecy that we love to quote at Christmas time. We usually quote chapter 9, verse 6 about how Jesus is the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, I want to read to you verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So Jesus is not only the king of righteousness, Jesus is the king of peace. And the reason he's the king of peace is because he makes peace through the blood of his cross. That's why. He makes peace between guilty sinners and God. King of righteousness. King of peace. So we see his parentage, or lack thereof. We see his power being the fact that he is a king in two dimensions, righteousness and peace. But now let's look at his priesthood. His priesthood. And we get our information from his priesthood 
primarily from Hebrews chapter 7. He was priest of God Most High. Now, what is a priest? That's important for us to understand. What exactly is a priest? He makes okay, one who makes intercession. A representative. a representative of God. Okay. And I'll just expand on both of those ideas, which are true ideas, by saying he's a mediator. That's like an intercessor, isn't it? Or an advocate. He's a mediator who reconciles guilty people to God by offering a sacrifice. Now, does Jesus quit the, fit those qualifications? First of all, mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. What does the ransom point to? Yeah, the purchase, the sacrifice. So he is the mediator, the priest, who offers the sacrifice, which is himself, in order to reconcile guilty sinners to God. So Jesus fits, he qualifies as a priest. So here we find that he is a priest. And the first thing we notice about Melchizedek as a priest is that he brings out bread and wine to Abraham. Now, if you had just got done fighting a battle, First, you have to travel 100 miles just to meet the enemy in battle. Then you pursue them for 100 miles, and you're finally done, and you get to come on home. You are just wasted and fatigued, and, and just, you're tired. And you're slowly trudging home. You're carrying all this booty, gold and silver and clothes and food and armor from the enemy that you have accumulated. And you've got all these people that you freed, and you're trucking on home. And here comes this king, but he's also a priest, and he brings out, interestingly, bread and wine. Fast forward a couple thousand years, and you've got the ultimate high priest. And what does he do? He offers us what the bread and the wine represent. He offers us himself, his broken body, and his shed blood. In John chapter 6, the Bible says in John chapter 6 that if we eat his flesh, and drink his blood, we have his life in ourselves. And he's not talking about literally, of course, eating his flesh and blood. He's talking about we receive the sacrifice of Christ through faith. And as we trust in that sacrifice and lean into that and believe upon him and what he's accomplished for us, we receive his life. Just like my buddy Mark Webb likes, Webb, he, he likes to say that we're just ticks on a hound. <laughs> we're parasites. <laughs> Jesus is the host, and we're the parasite, and we're drawing all of our life just from our attachment to that hound dog. That's exactly what we are, isn't it? It's not very flattering, but it's the truth. We're parasites, and we derive all of our life from him. So he brings out bread and wine. Jesus brings out his body and his blood and says, feast on this by faith, and you'll have life. And not only does he bring out bread and wine, but as a priest... The interesting thing about him is that he, since he has no end of life, since we never read about him dying, it's as though his priesthood never really comes to an end because he never comes to an end, which is another type of our high priest. I want you to see that as you go over to the book of Hebrews with me, chapter 7. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7. The Levitical priesthood 
Did you know that the Levitical priests could begin serving at age 25 and they had to retire at age 50? So there's a 25-year window in which they could serve as a priest. The problem with the Levitical priesthood was that all of these priests just kept on dying. So they needed more. So you would have children and your son would become a priest. In fact, all you had to do to qualify yourself to be a priest in Israel was to be born from a Levitical priest. That's all. You didn't have to be necessarily a righteous person. You just had to be descended from a priest. Jesus' case is different. Jesus was not descended from any Levitical priest, was he? He wasn't from the tribe of Levi. What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Judah. In fact, he's going to make a point of that in Hebrews chapter 7. That our high priest descended from Judah, of which nothing was ever heard in terms of the priesthood. That's because he's of a whole different order of priests. He's not like the Levitical priest. He's like Melchizedek. Completely different arrangement. So here we go. He, he doesn't begin at age 25. Jesus begins his priestly work at the cross when he's about 33 years old and it lasts just a few hours. In six short hours, he's done with his priestly work. He's offered the sacrifice of himself. He dies, but then he's raised from the dead. And in Hebrews chapter 7, it says, because of the power of an indestructible life, his priesthood abides forever. Now go with me over to chapter 7 of Hebrews to verse 20. First of all, his abiding priesthood comes about because of an oath, an oath that God the Father took. Hebrews 7 verse 20. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, there's the oath, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. I love that. <laughs> God is never, ever going to change his mind about Jesus bringing, being this priest. Thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he says in verse 22, So much the more also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. They died, okay, their priesthood's over. Someone else has got to take their spot. But he, on the other hand, because he abides forever, holds his priesthood permanently. That's his point. Verse 25, hence also he is able to save forever, there's our key word, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Okay, Levitical priests die. Someone else has got to take their, their place. That person dies. Someone else takes their place. There's a never-ending uh, troop of priests coming in and going out. This other priesthood, there's only one, and it can never come to an end. First of all, because God made an oath. God swore that he would never come to an end. And if you can trust anybody, you can trust an oath that God himself makes. Secondly, because he was resurrected from the dead, never to die again, his priesthood can't stop. If Jesus could somehow stop living, then his intercession for us could somehow stop being made. But because he is in the power of an indestructible life, there's no way that he can ever cease being a priest for you or for I. 
So he was a priest for first century saints. He was a priest for fifth century saints and 16th century saints and 18th century saints and 21st century saints. And guess what? He will be a priest forever. It'll never stop. That's one of the reasons why our salvation is secure. You might think, well, I might make it to heaven, but what if somehow I screw it up even after I get there? It's not possible. (laughs) Number one, because you're going to be living in a glorified body, which will have no desire or will to sin from then on. But number two, because you've got a high priest who abides forever and covers anything that could ever take place in your life that might tend to disqualify you. He takes care of sin for time and for eternity. So we have a priesthood or we have a priest whose priesthood abides eternally. And that is good, good news. So we see Melchizedek's parentage. We see his power as a king. We see his priesthood. But there's one other thing we really need to zero in on, and that is his preeminence. You see, Melchizedek was greater than any Levitical priest who ever lived, including Levi, the head of the Levitical race, or nation, or whatever, the the tribe, But he was also greater than Aaron. You see, Abraham was the great-grandfather of Levi. Levi was the great-grandfather of Aaron. Aaron became the first high priest, and all other high priests descended from him. Now, how do we know that Melchizedek was a greater high priest than Aaron, and also his great-grandfather, Levi? It does say... Okay, so there's two reasons, two reasons. Number one, Melchizedek received something. Number two, Melchizedek gave something. We'll start with what he gave first. Melchizedek gave a blessing. Now that should prick our attention because just last week we read that in Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be what? Blessed. We would expect Abraham to be the one who gives the blessing to Melchizedek. God just told him back in chapter 12, two chapters earlier, you are going to bless all the nations of the earth. But instead of Abraham being the one who blesses, the blesser, he is the blessee. (laughs) He's the one that receives the blessing from Melchizedek. And over here in um, Hebrews 7, verse 7, it says, without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. That tells us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now that ought to get our attention because to the Jews, there was nobody greater than Melchizedek. To them, he was the greatest man who ever lived. You mean Abraham? Yeah, Abraham. Sorry about that. To Abraham. All of the prophets and the priests and the kings of Israel came from Abraham. He was the father of the entire nation. But yet this man is being blessed by this strange, mysterious man, Melchizedek, which tells us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Secondly, Melchizedek received something from Abraham. He received tithes. Tithes from Abraham. And the author of Hebrews makes a big deal about that. Hebrews 7, verse 9. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now I know this is, it's hard for us to understand this concept. With our, 
Western minds. But to a Jewish mind, this would have made sense. This is the argument. Okay, and this is really the argument of the whole letter of Hebrews. What the author of the letter to Hebrews is trying to get across is that Jesus is better than Judaism. They were in danger of going back to Judaism. They were being tempted. And that's why he keeps on exhorting them through the whole letter to the Hebrews, don't go back. Don't neglect so great a salvation. Keep pressing on to maturity. All the way through there are these exhortations. Because they, some of them were being tempted to go back to the familiar, the sacrificial system, the, the priests descended from Aaron. And so his argument here is simply this. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Levi was in the loins of Abraham. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek. And if Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek, that means Melchizedek is greater because he received the tithes from someone that was inferior. Does, it may not make sense, but do you get the logic? <laughs> Let's say your great-grandfather was involved in World War I, and he died in battle before he was married and before he had any children. Okay, So your great-grandfather died in battle. How does that affect you? You wouldn't exist. No. You see, what Abraham did had ramifications for those who came from him. And that's what his point is here. There's solidarity between Abraham and those descended from him, the Levites. And so he's saying here, Jesus, who is the anti-type, the reality that Melchizedek pointed towards, Jesus is greater than Levi, and the entire Levitical system that descended from Levi, because Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek's a poor substitute for Jesus. Jesus is far superior to Melchizedek. Okay? So we kind of get that settled in our mind. Jesus must have the preeminence in our hearts, in our church, and in our world. That's why we do world missions, by the way, is because Jesus must have the preeminence. John Piper likes to say, missions exist because worship doesn't. And what he means by that is that the unreached peoples of the world must come to worship this one because he's worthy of worship or worship. That's really where worship comes from. Worthship. Jesus is worthy of all worship. And that's why we go and tell the nations of the world. So we've seen his parentage, his power, his priesthood, his preeminence. Now, I just want to wind up by emphasizing something that we haven't spent much time really thinking about up to this point, and that is that Jesus is both a priest and a king. Now, someone who is listening to the letter of Hebrews being read to him, if he was a Jew, and he, was, he heard this letter being read that Melchizedek was a priest and a king, that would have just startled him, shocked him. Because a Jew realized that you can't be a priest and a king. That just never happened. Now, you did have people that were kings and prophets, like King David. And you did have those who were prophets and priests, like Samuel. But you never had a king and a priest. There were two guys in the history of Israel who tried 
to become priests when they were already kings. And it, it ended badly for them. The first one was King Saul. He was getting ready to go into battle against the Philistines. And he knew that they wanted to offer sacrifice to their God to give them blessing as they went into battle. But Samuel was late getting there. And he figured, well, somebody's got to offer the sacrifice. I guess I'll do it. So he offered the sacrifice. Samuel shows up right afterwards and he says, that's it, buddy. God's going to tear the kingdom away from you. And he's going to give it to someone who has, um, who's a man after God's own heart, prophesying about David to come. So because he disobeyed God and stepped into, intruded into the priestly office to offer sacrifice, God took his kingdom away ultimately and gave it to somebody else. Then there was another king, King Uzziah. We read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. King Uzziah went into the temple and offered incense. Do you know how it ended for him? God struck him with leprosy to the day of his death because he intruded into the priestly office. didn't matter if you were a king. The most important, powerful, influential person among the people of Israel didn't matter. You were not to take upon yourself the role of a priest. But in Jesus, we have a king priest. He's both king of righteousness and priest of the Most High God. Now, there's a difference between a king and a priest, isn't there? The king's job is to enforce righteousness. It's to enforce the law. The priest's job is to reconcile lawbreakers. Jesus is the one who enforces the law of God by punishing the guilty. He is the judge, after all. He is also the priest who reconciles guilty men to God. See, we have both of those ideas in our, um, in our judicial system. Like, if you have to go to court, there will be a judge. His, judge, his job is to enforce the law, isn't it? To punish lawbreakers. But then you've got the defense attorney and his job is to get you off the hook. It's to justify you before that judge so that he does not inflict the punishment upon you. So the judge is like the king. The defense attorney is like the priest. Now let's say you have been convicted of some horrible crime and you take your stand in the courtroom and there's the judge up on his bench and there's the prosecuting attorney over there. And you look around and there's no defense attorney next to you. And you go, where is my defense attorney? <laughs> where did he go? He's not here. And the judge stands up. And the bailiff says, all rise. And the judge says, we'll now hear the defense present their case. And you're about ready to say, but, but judge, can we have a stay here? I don't have anyone to represent me. Until the judge stands up, gets up off the bench and comes and stands next to you and he says, I will be presenting the defense today. And what's going through your mind right about then? Conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> if it was me, I'd be saying, I think I'm, it's going to turn out okay. Everything's going to be all right because the judge is the one who's on my side. And that's what happens with Jesus Christ. The judge is now on our side. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the idea. 
He's your defense attorney. First John 2 1 says that he is your advocate. He is your intercessor. He is your mediator. He's your defense attorney. But he's also the one who makes the decision. He's the judge. He's not only the Lord, he's also the Savior. The Lord and Savior. Folks, there's nobody like Jesus. If you let him pass you by, there is no one else. Peter said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than Jesus Christ. There's nobody else. There's no one like him. And so my advice to you is to hold on to this one. Never let him go. The people that were uh, the Hebrews, the one that were receiving the letter to the Hebrews, they were in danger of letting Jesus go. And the author saying, don't do it. Don't go back to Judaism. If you pass him up, there is no hope for you. Hold on to this one. He is a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace. He establishes peace by his mighty rule. So, what is our response? Hallelujah, what a savior. Worship the king and receive the ministry of the priest and trust him and worship him for all eternity. Amen? Lord God, we are so thankful that we have in Jesus Christ a king priest. Not only Savior, but Lord. Not only Lord, but Savior. Not only judge, but defense attorney. Oh, Lord Jesus, how rich we feel today <laughs> to have you on our side, to take our case, to take it up, and to justify us, not because you're such a smooth talker, or you are able to falsify the information to get us off the hook, but because you paid for our crimes in your own person on the cross. And because it's paid in full, you can legally declare that we are not guilty because you assumed our guilt and took our guilt and paid for it in your own person. Oh God, hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Be glorified today in your people, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.